Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to a special encore edition of Broadway Nation. Today, February 10th, 2022, marks the opening night of the much-delayed, much-anticipated, much-talked-about big new Broadway revival of The Music Man, starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. And just two days ago, the recent Steven Spielberg-directed movie remake of West Side Story, which is still playing in movie theaters, received a host of Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture. So this seemed like the perfect moment to revisit one of my favorite episodes of Broadway Nation, West Side Story versus The Music Man. These two classic Golden Age musicals famously went head-to-head at the 1958 Tony Awards, and people still argue about which show should have won Best Musical. On this episode, Albert Evans and I compare and contrast these two great shows, two of the greatest of all time in our estimation, and we reveal that they actually have a lot more in common than most people think. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the radio show and podcast that tells the incredible story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode West Side Story versus The Music Man. Episodes 15 and 16 of Broadway Nation focused on the dawn of the golden age of Broadway, and we followed how it progressed and evolved from the 1940s into the 1950s, and we especially focused on how that groundbreaking revolutionary musical play format that was pioneered by Hammerstein and Rogers soon made it clear that the musical comedy would have to be reinvented as well. What exactly is the difference between a musical play and a musical comedy? I describe it like this. A musical play, even though it often includes a great deal of humor, is at heart principally endeavoring to tell a serious, dramatic, and emotional story that provides the audience with some insight into human life and human nature. Its main purpose is to make us feel something. On the other hand, a musical comedy, even though it might often have serious underlying themes, is most intent on amusing and delighting the audience. Its main purpose is to make us happy, to make us walk out of the theater with that buzzy, joyous feeling I call a musical comedy high. At the end of the 1950s, as the golden age reaches its pinnacle, many of the greatest musicals seem to blur the lines between those two forms. 
Every Broadway theater season during the 1950s gave us at least one great classic, enduring, golden age musical. And in a number of seasons, there were several of those. The decade was crowned by four legendary musicals that went head-to-head for the Best Musical Prize at the Tony Awards. In the 1957-58 season, it was West Side Story versus The Music Man. And the 1959-60 season brought Gypsy versus The Sound of Music. There are Broadway fans today who are still upset about which of those shows won and which of them, in their view, was robbed of the award. Together, I believe that these four shows exemplify the Golden Age Broadway musical at its zenith. Today, we'll discuss that first pairing, West Side Story and The Music Man. The story behind West Side Story begins in 1949, when Leonard Bernstein, Jerome Robbins, and Arthur Lawrence began talking about creating a modern musical version of Romeo and Juliet. At first, their idea was to use conflicts between Catholics and Jews to explain the violent animosity between the Capulets and Montagues, and their working title for that version was East Side Story. However, after much discussion, the idea was shelved because it all sounded too much like the 1922 play A.B.'s Irish Rose, a sentimental comedy about a secret marriage between a Jewish boy and an Irish Catholic girl. That play was enormously popular, but was despised by most critics, and its title became something of a punchline over the years. A lyric in the Rodgers and Hart song Manhattan expressed the feelings of many sophisticated theater makers who were rather disgruntled to see such a cheesy show become the longest-running play in history. The lyric goes, Our future babies will take to A.B.'s Irish Rose. I hope they'll live to see it close. In 1955, Bernstein and Robbins picked up the idea again when they were both working in Los Angeles on separate projects, and they met at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Deborah Jowett describes this meeting in her book Jerome Robbins, His Life, His Theater, His Dance. Dangling their legs in the pool, they gradually drifted to the subject of East Side Story and the current newspaper headlines about violence between juvenile gangs of Chicanos and Anglos. Eureka! Robbins readily agreed that ethnicity rather than religion should be the crux of the conflict and that gangs rather than families the antagonists. In the end, the dramatic events of the play would be ripped from the headlines of New York's daily newspapers. One 1956 article reported that five youths displaying their prowess before a gang of 15 girls critically wounded a boy on the West Side last night, and a New York Times article published just months before the show's debut stated that four youths were arrested last night in the aftermath of a teenage gang fight in which one youngster was fatally stabbed. This, along with other news about juvenile delinquency and growing racial conflicts in America, convinced the authors to design the central conflict of their show as a turf war between the Sharks, a Puerto Rican gang, and the Jets, a motley mix of white, Polish, Italian, and Irish immigrant stock. When you're a Jet, you're a Jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a Jet, if the spit hits the fan, you got brothers around, you're a family man. You're never alone, you're never disconnected. You're home with your own. When company's expected, you're well protected. Then you are set with a capital J, which you'll never forget till they cart you away. When you're a jet, you stay on 
As the Sharks point out in the show, the Jets, who are the children and grandchildren of actual immigrants, want the Puerto Ricans to go back where they came from, and of course where they came from was America. It was the growing accessibility and affordability of air travel that had led to what is now known as the Great Migration, the massive wave of Puerto Ricans that poured into New York City during the 1950s. And Puerto Ricans were the very first Latinx group to move to New York City in large numbers. The original plan was for Bernstein to write both the music and the lyrics himself, but it was soon clear that his classical conducting schedule would make this impossible to accomplish, and young Stephen Sondheim was brought on board to take over the lyrics. This completed a very queer creative team. All four of the principal creators of West Side Story were both Jewish and gay, and other queer creative team members included the set designer Oliver Smith, lighting designer Gene Rosenthal, and costume designer Irene Sheriff. For a brief while, the show seemed like it would have the unfortunate title of Gangway. But finally, the team landed on a variation of its original title. Now it would be called West Side Story. In her book titled Something's Coming, Something Good, West Side Story and the American Imagination, author Misha Burson suggests that West Side Story's score is distinguished by its dance-driven urgency and its broad sonic palette of musical modes, from Wagnerian leitmotifs to Latin dance music to big band blues and American avant-garde music. It constantly shifts rhythms and keys and confounds the then-circumscribed categories of show music and long hair music with agility. However, even with all this incredible musical variety, the score and in fact the entire show has amazing unity. It all works and feels as if it came from one voice, one theatrical vision. A large part of this unity can be attributed to Bernstein's use of a much-talked-about musical device. I asked Broadway Nation's resident musical expert, Albert Evans, to explain just what that device is and how Bernstein built West Side Story's score around it. Bernstein's music for West Side Story is full of an unusual sound. It's a musical interval called the tritone. Now, an interval is the relationship between one note, one pitch, and another. And the notes of an interval can be played separately or together. Now, back in the Middle Ages, when Western musical harmony was in its infancy and still developing, there was a lot of talk in the church about which musical intervals were most pleasing to God. Turns out, God especially liked the perfect fourth. And the perfect fifth. But there's an interval between those, and it sounds like this. That nasty dissonance was considered so unstable, so offensive to heaven, that it was called Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music, the devil's tritone, and it was avoided at all cost. Its sinister reputation lasted for centuries. 
Of course, whatever is forbidden is just that much more tempting. And in the 19th century, composers who wanted to create a diabolic sound were quick to employ the wicked tritone. Like Sasson in his Danse Macabre, where the tritone represents the sound of the devil playing a fiddle next to the bed of a dying man. so many other examples, including any number of heavy metal bands like Black Sabbath. unstable, sinister tritone is at the heart of at least half the songs in West Side Story. One of the first themes we hear is a variation on a Jewish shofar call. The shofar is an ancient instrument fashioned out of a ram's horn. Its loud voice has been used for millennia to call the people to assemble or to prepare for war. It was a divine shofar call that brought the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses went up to receive Jehovah's commandments. And it's still an important part of Jewish ceremonies. Here's a typical shofar call. No tritone there, but Bernstein bent it to his purposes, altering a note to announce his story of an unstable world. From then on, the score is filled with tritones. The Jet Song. You're never alone. You're never disconnected. You're home with your own. When company's expected, you're well protected. Something's coming. Could be. Who knows? There's something due any day. I will know right away. Soon as it shows. It make them count. In the dance at the gym, the tritone begins to take on a gentler tone as a cha-cha. which later becomes the hyper-romantic Maria. Maria, I've just met a girl named Maria. Then it turns sinister and edgy and cool. and sardonic in G. Officer Krupke. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just a... Bernstein, Robbins, Lawrence, and Sondheim were unsure how audiences would react to West Side Story. And at first, the response was mixed. Everything from raves to walkouts. 
A few critics called the music tuneless. Maybe their ears just weren't accustomed yet to the tritone. It took a few years, but by the time the movie came out in 1961, West Side Story had won over America and the world and was recognized as a landmark of the musical theater. It's also made the tritone a standard item in the musical theater composer's tool chest, sometimes almost a cliché. We hear it everywhere, in dozens of musicals, in Michael Jackson videos, even in the theme song from The Simpsons. Contrary to many reports, the original Broadway production of West Side Story was quite successful, and for the most part, it was critically acclaimed. But it was not universally embraced. The story was a bit too dark, abrasive, and downbeat for many people. And as Albert said, the score was too discordant for some audience members. Even so, the show was nominated for six Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and it received the Tony Awards for Best Choreography and Set Design. And it would go on to run a very respectable but not spectacular 732 performances. In many ways, the show, the staging, and the score were truly ahead of their time. However, in 1961, the film version of West Side Story would receive 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And that, along with its blockbuster soundtrack album, would turn West Side Story into one of the most beloved musicals of all time. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code bn50, as in Broadway Nation, bn50 at factormeals.com bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Music Man is one of the only hit musicals in history to have its book, music, and lyrics all written by the same person, Meredith Wilson. And the show was based on his own experiences and situations from his childhood growing up in Mason City, Iowa, where his mother was a music teacher. The character of Winthrop is in many ways a stand-in for Wilson in his youth. He learned to play the flute and piccolo as a child, and in high school got plenty of experience as a member of the marching band. He would live at home, however, only up to the age of 17, when, with a battered piccolo in his pocket, he took a train to New York City and enrolled in the Damrosh Institute of Musical Art, which later became the Juilliard School of Music. I've asked Albert to fill us in on Wilson's musical career prior to The Music Man. Wilson was a highly trained musician. As a young man, he played in John Philip Sousa's concert band. He played first piccolo, so he's the one you would have heard on that virtuoso piccolo counterpoint in The Stars and Stripes Forever. He joined the New York Philharmonic under the autocratic baton of Arturo Toscanini, the most famous conductor of the day. Then he became a music director for various radio networks, all of whom fielded their own symphony orchestras. He wrote movie scores for stars, and he became a celebrity himself by hosting and conducting his own radio shows. And if you've ever wondered where Harold Hill's style was born, it was during a labor strike. One radio program was scheduled during a musician's strike, so there was no accompaniment for the singing commercials. Hmm. He was undaunted. He wrote a rhythmically chanted, tuneless commercial, which was so well received that the stunt was repeated even after the musicians returned. Then in 1950, Frank Lesser and others encouraged him to turn a memoir about his childhood that he had written the previous year into a musical. It would take Wilson eight years and 30 revisions to complete the show, and he had to write more than 40 songs to arrive at the 19 that actually ended up in the musical. And as I mentioned, Meredith Wilson set the show in a fictional version of his hometown, Mason City, Iowa. When asked about how he had created The Music Man, he would always say, I didn't have to make anything up. All I had to do was remember. However, the plot of The Music Man is far from the wholesome, nostalgic, apple pie slice of Americana that it may appear to be at first glance. As the author Scott Miller writes, 
the script and score are expertly constructed, savagely funny, occasionally touching, and filled with wonderfully eccentric characters. Along the way, the show takes gleeful potshots at most of what Americans hold dear. Small-town generosity, family values, representative government, education, the 4th of July, Caucasian Americans' view of Native American culture, classical Western culture, and the great and often misplaced hope of so many parents that their child might have the talent to play a musical instrument. May I have your attention, please? Attention, please. I can deal with the troubled friends with a wave of my hand, this very hand. Please observe me if you will. I'm Professor Harold Hill, and I'm here to organize a River City Boys Band. Harold Hill arrives in River City with only one intention, to bilk the townspeople out of as much of their hard-earned cash as he can through his bogus scheme to create a boys' band, and then to skip town with the money before they find out it's a scam. And along the way, he will try to seduce Marion the librarian just to make sure that she doesn't spill the beans. And yet the audience loves Harold Hill and roots for him to succeed from his first line and through to the final curtain. Why do we root for this scoundrel? Because Meredith Wilson deftly establishes a town that prior to Harold Hill's arrival is close-minded, isolationist, dysfunctional, and emotionally shut down. As the author Raymond Knapp writes, it is full of separate individuals that are distrustful of one another and prone to gossip and scapegoating, and it is continually undermined by youthful rebellion, bickering leadership, and the perceived threat of outsiders. Knapp goes on to point out that every one of those traits was mirrored in the post-Korean War, Cold War, McCarthy era of the 1950s. Just like West Side Story, the music man reflected the issues of the day. We are drawn to Harold Hill because we immediately understand that he is the life force that River City in 1912 and America in 1957 desperately needs to save it from itself, and as Knapp contends, to goad it out of its lethargic smugness, its summer doldrums, into recognizing the energizing power of community-based feeling and activity. It's perhaps no coincidence that The Music Man's queer director, Morton DaCosta, was also the director of the previous year's big Broadway hit play, Anti-Mame, and he also directed the terrific film versions of both of those shows. The characters of Mame Dennis and Harold Hill share much of the same theatrical DNA. Both are vibrant, charismatic disruptors that advocate for art, freedom, and progressive values, and vanquish the conservative, conformist, bourgeois beliefs that stand in their path. Mame's famous battle cry is, Live, live, live. Life is a banquet and most poor bastards are starving to death. And in a similar vein, Harold Hill tells Marion, Oh, my dear little librarian, you pile up enough tomorrows and you'll find you're left with nothing but a lot of empty yesterdays. One of the reasons this show is so effective is that every one of its story problems and complications is solved through music. At every turn, Harold Hill uses the power of music to galvanize River City into becoming a genuine community. And to again quote Scott Miller, the result is a real American myth and one that George M. Cohan would be very proud of. Here again is Albert Evans with a look at Meredith Wilson's brilliant structure and conception for the score for The Music Man. In 1957, the Tony Award for Best Score went to The Music Man instead of the season's other outstanding musical, West Side Story. And sometimes people are surprised by that. They have the impression that The Music Man score is a simple affair made up of simple tunes. But anyone who has ever music directed The Music Man knows that that's far 
from the truth. Yes, Meredith Wilson's score is accessible in the best sense of the word. No one in the audience will be baffled or turned off by its complexity or strangeness. From his years as a radio music director, Wilson knew exactly how to reach the public, to tickle their ear, and he knew just how far he could indulge and disguise, if necessary, his own taste and training for musical trickery. All that conservatory stuff is under the hood, so to speak, but let's take a moment to lift that hood up and take a peek at all the pistons and gears. From the very first number, Meredith Wilson surprises us. It's chanted, not sung, by a railroad car full of traveling salesmen. And without sound effects, the salesman's words evoke the sound of a train, starting up slowly, picking up speed, rolling along the tracks, then breaking and grinding to a halt. Some people have called this the first rap song, but rap is built on rhymes, and this piece has none. Let's listen. River City, next station stop. River City, next. Cash for the merchandise. Cash for the button hooks. Cash for the cotton goods. Cash for the hard goods. Cash for the fancy goods. Cash for the soft goods. Cash for the noggins and the pigeons and the frickins. Cash for the hogshead cask and jemmy jar. Cash for the crackers and the pickles and the flypaper. Look, what do you talk? 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 Where do you get it? What do you talk? You can talk, you can talk. You can bicker, you can talk. You can bicker, bicker, bicker. You can talk, you can talk. You can talk, 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 talk. Bicker, bicker, bicker. You can talk all you want, but it's different than it was. No, it ain't. No, it ain't. But you gotta know the territory. Shh, shh, shh. That's just one of the musical surprises in this wonderful score. The underlying theme of The Music Man is that there is music everywhere if you just open your heart to it. There were bells on the hill, but I never heard them ringing till there was you. Meredith's masterstroke is sometimes unnoticed by the audience, although they surely feel it subliminally. When we first meet Marion, the lonely town librarian, she sings a beautiful Wish on a Star song, Good Night, My Someone. In the very next scene, Harold Hill is working his Pied Piper magic on the townspeople with an intoxicating march, 76 trombones. 76 trombones led the big parade with 110 cornets close at hand. They were followed by rows and rows of the finest virtuosos, the green of every famous band. Marion had taken an instant dislike to Professor Harold Hill, but these two songs tell us that they will complete each other. How? They sing the same tune. Good night, my someone. Good night, my love. 
76 trombones led the big parade. And not just those two phrases, the complete songs. One, a tender waltz, and the other, a rousing march. They're the same. True love can be whispered from heart to heart. There were 50 mounted cannon in the battery. Amazing. And both songs are perfect. Finally, I want to talk a bit about Wilson's masterful counterpoint. Now, counterpoint is writing two independent musical lines or phrases or whole songs that can be sung together without sounding, well, awful. There are some wonderful double songs in The Music Man. Pick a Little, Talk a Little, the women's gossiping song, works in counterpoint with the barbershop quartet's Goodnight Ladies. There was even one double song that didn't make it into the show. Harold's The Sadder But Wiser Girl was written to be sung with Marion's My White Knight as the Act One finale, but it was replaced by the more exciting Wells Fargo Wagon. The double song most people remember is the combination of Ida Rose and Will I Ever Tell You. Marion is beginning to realize she loves Harold, but knows that he'll soon be off to the next town. And so she's sort of musing at home as the barbershop quartet strolls through the town singing Lida Rose. Lida Rose, I'm home again, Rose, to get the sun back in the Daydreaming, Marion sings, Will I Ever Tell You? those great moments of musical theater magic, both songs blend together. Thank you. And if you don't have any more questions, I'm going to go listen to The Music Man. Thank you, Albert. That was wonderful. The Music Man became a massive hit, winning five Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and running for 1,375 performances. The original cast album received the first Grammy Award ever for Best Musical Theater Album, and that recording spent 245 weeks on the Billboard charts.
West Side Story is clearly a musical play, and in fact, it's one of the only musical tragedies. Still, the feeling of the show is incredibly vibrant and kinetic because Jerome Robbins was able to tell so much of the story through dynamic, breathtaking dance. And as a result, West Side Story has one of the shortest, tersest scripts in musical theater history. And following Shakespeare's lead, the authors make the tragedy of West Side Story even deeper by including large measures of irreverent and insightful comic relief. On the other hand, The Music Man is clearly a musical comedy, but one with an involving story, complex characters, and important underlying themes of its own. And if you look past the surface of these shows, you find that they actually have a lot in common. Both are about communities that are in crisis. Both involve issues of prejudice and intolerance. And as we have seen, both reflect specific social issues and problems of the 1950s. Both of them feature a dance at the gym where star-crossed young lovers come together. And although it's only one of several subplots, The Music Man features its own Romeo and Juliet story. The dancing juveniles, the mayor's daughter Zanita, and the tough young hoodlum and gang leader Tommy Gillis. In fact, in the dance section of Mary and the Librarian, they are discovered reading a large copy of Romeo and Juliet. At least they do that in the movie, which I assume is an echo of Anna White's original Broadway staging. And later, in response to her father's forbidding them to see one another, Zanita says, Papa, please, it's Capulets like you who make blood in the marketplace, ye gods. So the allusion to Romeo and Juliet couldn't be more explicit. And it is cultural or perhaps even racial prejudice that is the reason the mayor so disapproves of Tommy. His last name is Gilus, the only non-Anglo-Saxon character name in the show. And Mayor Shin brands Tommy as a wild kid and says that Tommy's father is one of them day laborers that lives south of town. In the film, the malaprop-prone mayor even refers to him as being Nithalanian. Presumably he means Lithuanian. Again, the issue is immigrants that won't stay where they belong. Even today, we associate day laborers with immigrants. Again, Wilson just had to remember, a major immigration of Eastern Europeans to Northern Iowa occurred between 1910 and 1920, and the countries they came from included Serbia, Yugoslavia, Lithuania, and Croatia. And indeed, Gilas is a common surname in that part of the world. As I related in my first two episodes, even as late as 1912, when this show is set, immigrants from Eastern Europe were not considered to be entirely white. Harold Hill's belief in Tommy, the investment of time, attention, and trust that he gives to him, is exactly what the juvenile delinquents of West Side Story will never get. Yes, Tommy and Zanita's entire story takes up probably less than 15 minutes of stage time, and even within that, much of their story is told through dance. And unfortunately, in many productions, Tommy is played by a not-very-dangerous-seeming young dancer, which dilutes the impact of the storyline. But still, it is clearly there in the writing. The other strong prejudice in the show is against Marion. She's the victim of vicious, small-minded gossip, and she is ostracized from the community because of her advocacy for art, music, and literature. Both worlds, the Upper West Side of West Side Story and River City, demand conformity from their inhabitants. And finally, both shows have complex musical scores that include a great deal of foreshadowing and cross-referencing. Chord progressions and melodic motifs from one song are echoed or hidden in another, and all of this creates a sense of unified design and cohesion. By the show's final curtains, the town of River City has been healed. Love and music have triumphed. However, in West Side Story, hate and prejudice have prevailed, and the community has been devastated with only a small hope that out of this tragedy, some good may come. 
So which show should have won the 1958 Tony Award for Best Musical? For me, it's a toss-up. The two shows are equally brilliant, equally moving, and equally deserving of their classic status. Without a doubt, the 1957-58 Broadway season produced two of the greatest shows of all time. There were bells on a hill, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all, till there was you. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong, with additional writing by the brilliant Albert Evans. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered, and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.